This episode of Country Queer Spotlight is brought to you by New West Records. Pick up your copy of Aaron Lee Tastian's fourth solo album, Tastian, 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 available now at newwestrecords.com or your local indie record store. This episode of Country Queer Spotlight is brought to you by Kill Rockstars, celebrating 30 years of music that matters, regardless of genre, gender, orientation, or classification. KRS.gay. Cowpokes and get ready to hit the trail with Country Queer Spotlight, the podcast that introduces you to rising LGBTQ stars on the country scene. Join your host, Rachel Colst, as she chats with her guests about their music, their background, their influences, and more. Let's ride. Ride me, I'm so excited to welcome you to this episode of Country Queer Spotlight, where I interview queer country matriarch Karen Pittleman of Karen and the Sorrows. Above all else, Karen is a role model of mine, and our conversation is a pretty far-reaching one. We talk about creating music scenes that are safe for everyone, our Jewish identities and white supremacy, its influence on country music, and the hopes and dangers as queer country music is becoming more accepted in the mainstream. Before we go further, let's listen to Just a Little Heartbreak, one of my favorite Karen and the Sorrow songs from their 2014 album, The Names of Things.
Welcome to Country Queer Spotlight, or maybe I should say welcome back, Karen. Karen <laughs> <laughs> the Sorrows. We recorded an interview last week, and it was such a great conversation. And then it turned out I had never actually hit the record button. So we're going to try this again. I'm your host, Rachel Colst, and we're speaking with Karen Pittleman from Karen and the Sorrows. And I think it's safe to say I for sure wouldn't be here if it wasn't for... Karen the Sorrows and your music and creating the Queer Country monthly slash Gail Opry concert series. It's been through a lot of different <laughs> name changes, but also Country Queer wouldn't exist and the network of queer country musicians that we have would have taken a lot longer to form, I think, because of Karen's tireless work. We'll be talking about all kinds of things, including how Karen made this scene not by herself of course and i'll <laughs> be the first to say that but also what it takes to make a music scene and make it sustainable and to help it thrive and i'm sure we'll also be talking about karen's activism related to white supremacy and anti-racism in country music and of course we'll also talk about her own journey as a queer musician and her own incredible music so let's just start from like the beginning to talk about your coming out experiences? Well, I definitely knew I was queer at a really young age, like the summer of third grade, which was the first year I went to sleepaway camp, to this girl's sleepaway camp. And there was this girl in another bunk that everybody was talking about, this big scandal that she had like showed everyone how she could put a flashlight inside her and it was like everyone was like horrified and was like nobody should ever talk to her again she was being like ostracized and I was like huh and I was like <laughs> I totally was like do you want to be friends though she she didn't want to be friends because she was kind of prickly but I I knew from that point on that there was something up with me. Worked really hard to kind of cover it up. Like I remember very deliberately, like also in camp, like finding pictures from the back of like teen magazines of like really buff men in like a Hawaiian tropic ad, like all oily and stuff, which even though I'm bi and like, I like men, but like not that, I never liked that. Ugh, I don't, not that kind of man. I don't like beefcake you know but I was like this will show everybody that I'm totally normal and like put it up on my cubby so yeah so I knew from a young age but then it was certainly easier for me in a lot of ways because I'm pretty gender conforming I've always been really femme and just taken a lot of pleasure in that and that certainly like takes some of the heat off of you know especially if you're you know when kids are just being so brutal and because I was bi, I was just like, oh, look, I like boys too, you know. So that also made things easier. But also it was an earlier time in the 90s and nobody had ever come out at my school. It wasn't, things hadn't started to change in the ways that they have since then. And, and really started to change pretty quickly after I got to college. So, but 
you know, no one's out, no one talked about it. Anybody who was suspected of being anything that deviated from the norm was just brutalized. So yeah, but then I, I got to college and it was a whole different world and I could just sort of be myself. So I had I was grateful for that. And it's always been a little bit confusing, I think, to be, I don't know, bi, pan. None of those words ever work for me. I like queer better, but, you know, I think that's also shifted a lot. Like, people can understand that, like, if you're, the person you're with at the moment doesn't define your whole sexual identity, but I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm so grateful for that shifting, too. But also, obviously, like, it it does define how the world is seeing you and how you're being treated. So, you know, that feels important to me to hold and acknowledge, you know, when I've been different partnerships and I definitely felt just how deeply different it is in the way you're treated by everybody. So that's my coming out story. We talked about last time that I wanted to share in terms of, like, what was a big experience, big influence on me in starting to build queer country community was like coming up in a queer core world in my 20s I was living in Boston and I was super crushed out on slam versus lesser and <laughs> <laughs> she was in a bunch of amber and sometimes she went by slamber <laughs> she played electric guitar and the drums and wrote songs Hot. and oh my god um, <laughs> oh. so yeah. I would like follow Slamber around to all of her shows and this was before I had a band and uh, though I'd always wanted to have a band and I was always secretly writing songs that I just didn't know what to do with them and and there was just a really cool queer core scene in Boston at the time and like Amber would take me to shows and we would go to see like the Butchies and like <laughs> and Slater Kenny and and that was where I just learned about like uh, building musical community and that like in that world it was it it wouldn't made sense to separate your politics from the music like they were always woven together and so much ab about that was like building spaces that people could feel at home in and not to say that people didn't fail like they failed all the time and they failed really astronomically and I think a lot of failures around thinking about racism a lot of failures and thinking about transphobia you know but at the same time like people were grappling with that you know it was it was a given that that conversation was happening as opposed to any other music spaces or other music communities where those conversations, you know, no one was having them. That wasn't even at issue. And so that's sort of the musical community I came up in. And then when I started making country music, I just felt lonesome for that. You know, I, I just missed missed being in queer community. I missed being making music in a space and listening to music in a space where we were bringing our, our whole selves and where we were trying to create a space that felt like home and felt welcoming. And so, you know, I, I learned the DIY lesson. In, <laughs> I think, well, you know, where it's just like, well, if there's something you need that doesn't exist, you have to make it. And so I was like, oh, well, 
fuck, I guess. <laughs> I guess we better get to work. You know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, something that was really interesting from what we talked last week was uh, a phrase you kept saying, I don't think you realized you said it several times, was that you, you kind of have to keep failing and failing until you get better at it. Right. And that isn't just in terms of like, I remember to hit the record on your Zoom <laughs> and making that a muscle memory, but also like, uh, you know, you're going to make mistakes. And I think for a lot of us, human nature would be, oh, well, I made a mistake. This space wasn't safe enough. And mm-hmm. then you kind of like might want to shrink away or feel ashamed. But I think as you were describing the queer core scene in Boston, but then nothing gets done that way. Mm -hmm. I think you have to acknowledge that there's always going to be some failure, but that then you work to prevent that failure in the future. Yeah. I mean, certainly like the, you know, when you look at like, what are the uh, characteristics of white supremacy, right? Number one is often perfectionism. And Mm. I think that stops a lot of us from, from creating the kind of spaces we need and creating the community we need because of course like nobody wants to fail (laughs) i don't want to fail either it feels terrible and nothing feels worse than realizing that you fucked up and like somebody felt bad or got hurt i mean you know that's the last thing you ever want but if you give up you can't learn from that. And the only way we're getting anywhere is by learning and working together and being open enough to hear it when we fuck up, you know? So yeah, I feel like if there's anything I've been learning and getting, you know, as I get older, (laughs) I think it's that, like just getting better at failing and and being willing to, you know, just being able to hold that space and to hear things that are hard or feel bad or that you really don't want to hear and and listen and do your best to pick yourself back up and try again and not take it too personally. It's which is it's hard to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> only human. Before we get further into that discussion around anti-racist activism and how that influences your music, let's listen to some music. So I was wondering, do you feel like there's a specific Butchie song that you think could really exemplify, like one that like you really feel attached to, at least in your moment, that we could listen to? And then I was thinking we could pair it with Ocean Born Mary so that we could sort of hear like some of your earlier recorded country music and kind of see how they line up or don't you know it's funny okay. right? because the truth is like that music didn't mean the most to me I yeah. mean no disrespect to um, the main thing I took away from the butchies is where they they would wear like the like UPS brown jumpsuit uniforms which were just really hot and yeah. <laughs> and the way they started their own music label you mm-hmm. know and all of these like real like these very intentional ways of building community outside of the music industry. The, that influenced me so much more than the songs. And the, like the, it's the songs that have influenced me so much of them are like, 
you know, not the model that I believe in. Like, I don't feel like Neil Young has built any sort of model that I believe in, but he is probably, you know, one of the bigger influences on my music. So it, it's just so interesting when you asked me that, because I was like, wow, like, who's influenced the way I try to be a musician and the way I try to be in community is so different than who has influenced, like, the sounds I want to hear. Like, you know, like, I we both love the drive-by truckers. Like, that sound, probably more than anything, is what drove me to start this band. Like, I was listening to the Dirty South, and I just was like, I need to make that sound. Like, there's something in that twang that just vibrates in my whole body in this way that like it made me feel like I need to be creating the sound that's vibrating you know like it it pushed me into action and yeah that's also like I mean I think the drive-by truckers work really hard to be intentional and thinking Mm. you know especially about like legacy of white supremacy in the south and and speaking to that but certainly the community they create like when I've gone to their shows like I do not feel at home there at all (laughs) just to compare and contrast let's listen to the drive-by truckers where the devil don't stay off of the dirty south then all the oceans from Karen and the Sorrows first EP Ocean Born Mary
the world was gray Before black and white when it shows up sides And made a little bit of both away The only blood that's any cleaner Is the blood that's blue or greener Without either you just get meaner And the blood you gave gives you
I mean, that's why I started Adobe and Teardrops. I was always the only like woman who was there without a boyfriend, right? Mm-hmm. And definitely, usually, like all the only like visibly queer person. Yeah, I felt honestly a little in danger at those shows. I did not feel okay. Yeah, this is a lot of big, beefy, straight white men who were wasted. Like, that's my nightmare. I mean, I don't even like being in straight people bars. Like, the, yeah. those people scare me. <laughs> the whole body shuts down. And I don't like to be performing for that audience either because also my body shuts down. And I felt that when I would play shows. And, like, we were we – the first time we went on tour – we played this show at like a dive bar and it was a good show and you know there was just but there were a couple of like boys in the front row in their baseball caps like drunk just being like menacing you know in a way that I felt very clearly and Alana and Tammy felt very clearly but then there were the men who were in my band at the time like they were just like that was a great show we want to play more of those shows like this is exactly the kind of show we want to play like that was so much fun and I was like shaking and Alana and Tammy were like I don't like it here at all let's leave and I it was in that moment where I was just like oh I had put on the first scale Opry but I didn't really know what was next but in that moment I was like oh I need this space so desperately just so that I can perform in a place that like I can like so I can just perform well too you know right like yeah 
I mean, so you literally like carved out <laughs> your own space. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to me, like music is about joy. And even when it's about sorrow, it's about joy, you know, and being in communion with each other. And something I can never play shows where I don't feel at home, but you need to be at home sometimes, you know? Yeah, yeah I mean... There's a reason I would schlep from uptown Manhattan to Brooklyn and have been for 10 years and counting. Yes, <laughs> like, you are a hero, a hero. It's and only you- 45 minutes. Back when the MTA no. worked, it was only 45 minutes under you Bloomberg. Hero, <laughs> hero. And I know yeah. I said this last time and you tried to stop me, but I can't be stopped. I'm saying it again. Rachel is such a fundamental part of why this whole community was able to exist and grow and the ways that you supported it in every way like from running the door to to giving your like love and support always to those performers and then to writing about everybody like that is such a huge part of what makes a scene and a community be able to grow I, I think it's easy for people to think like, oh, it's just about the bands, you know, or it's just about the person who's like the promoter who's putting on the shows. But it really, so much of it about is about like that support and love that you gave and the ways that you amplified all the stories in everyone's music. So take that. It's a fact. <laughs> I will, and I'm less embarrassed this time. Good. We've just been this super grassroots like community where everybody who cares about it like helps out and pitches in and runs the door and like spreads the word and uh, yeah it's been like it's been 10 years and I don't know I feel really grateful that I've gotten to build all this with with everyone and and it was so it happened so fast like as soon as we just started talking about it then like the first person who came to me was like paisley was like oh i have a queer country band and i was like what do you mean you have a queer country band like we just started we just made that up like (laughs) not a thing (laughs) and i think she had learned about you through wiley gaby who's back in new york now (laughs) oh is that true yeah i bet and like Wiley, I learned about a different person who was playing who knew Wiley. And like, you know, so much of it is just about building connections to each other. And, you know, and then as people come in, they bring like all their energies and their strengths and their skills, you know, and then we can like create that space together. So then, yeah, I feel, God, 10 years, that went fast, right? right? I mean, I was thinking like, 10 years ago, I think Facebook was sort of like perfect because it wasn't scary powerful yet. And we didn't, Instagram was just starting and Twitter was for like basically just writers and like PR people. So (laughs) it also wasn't like the weird level of toxic it is now. Anyway, so golden age of social media looking back with rose tinted glasses. But my (laughs) point is that like it wasn't like consuming us the way it does now. How did you build these networks at a time where? people weren't necessarily using social media as like the way we do now where like Mm -hmm. everyone reflexively checks it, but that's not how we lived like 10 to 15 years ago. Yeah. But you were building that, those networks at that time. I mean, I think so much of it is really just like 
building relationships and, you know, spreading the word by word of mouth. And, you know, you play with a, a band and then that band tells the people on their mailing list and, you know, it sort of grows slower that way. But also, I think, a little more sturdy because you have to, like... I feel like in the before times and you had to work harder to find out about stuff when you found something that you were really looking for, you know, you kind of had a more of a commitment to it. I don't know if that's true, actually, though. I, I, my experience over the last 10 years with this, you know, with this work has been like when people find us, they're so psyched, like... It's just like, and that's why I started doing it. Like when we put on the first scale Opry, people had such an intense reaction and were just like, oh, I've been waiting for this my whole life. You know, and I think that that's still true. And that's part of why it has taken off in a wider way because there are just so many queer people who love country music. And it's been you know, that, that cognitive dissonance of loving something that, you know, like I always say, that doesn't love you back is so intense that when you find a space where you can be your full self and love the music you love, because like music is so deep and visceral, like it's in your body in this way that other art forms aren't, you know, like you're vibrating, literally, like that's how you experience it. You're ear is vibrating your body is vibrating like it's inside of you whether or not you want it to be and so there's such a grief that comes along with like loving something and it being in you in your cells and your bones but also like knowing that that music and the people who make it and the industry that promotes it you know isn't thinking about you doesn't care about your life like and, you know, when it comes to thinking about white supremacy in country music, like, is actively constructing this this worldview that not only erases your experience, not only doesn't, like, make room for you, but is propping up violent and dangerous system that, that like, you know, where your life doesn't matter. I mean, that's... You know, and I don't, I don't think that's a, what the truth of the music is. I think that's why we love the music. We feel this other, we feel our own truths inside of the music. But so whether you find, whether you find us from social media or word of mouth or like however people have come to to these spaces, like that feeling of, of realizing like, oh, I can make the music I want to make. I can listen to the music that I love and I am with people who who believe my life is sacred, you know, and who are going to have my back and fight for me. Like, you know, I think there's something really transformative about that when we do it right. Not to say that we always do it right, you know, but, but when we do it right and when we together create that communion with each other, that has real power, you know. Yeah, something you said in take one of this interview was like making a, a place that isn't palatable to like music row and making something that's kind of like safe from capitalism because it's not something that like you want to market. And, you know, I guess that could lead us into like, we're seeing a lot of money being thrown at queer country music right now. 
So, mm-hmm. you know, last time we spoke, we talked about like, you know, Apple Music has Proud Radio, the whole podcast. Spotify has playlists at the wazoo, especially for folk and country music. You know, queer country, ugh, start over. Country Queer is running a fundraiser right now. Please donate to the Patreon so that all the writers and myself can get paid for working on this site. As much as uh, we love doing this, it would be awesome to get paid for that time. But there's money, right? Yeah. Involved. So then that is going to lead to like very specific dynamics. And even just in the last week, the Country Music Association, which is widely considered the more conservative of the two big country trade orgs, they have a rainbow logo for the first time ever. They... Or make it they made a queer country playlist which is very exciting to see oh god so I like that. <laughs> yeah and i was like wait that happened and also like, oh my god that, is that I, important I, we've got a amethyst yeah. and a number of other like queer black women leading awards nominations at the americana music awards which also has its own checkered past with diversity <laughs> as much as americana likes to cast itself as being more liberal how do you see like the evolution between like you know, having like this monthly concert in a very tiny bar in Brooklyn mm-hmm. and eventually the Little Field, but then back to Brandon, oh, where we are now. Yeah. <laughs> Not that this matters, but yeah. there's like big festivals and that's the Opry. And then there was the monthly. Oh, thanks. Smaller. But then I just switched it to quarterly because monthly was too hard to to keep going. But so yeah. the like Queer Country Quarterly would have like about 50 people at it and uh, little field and like the other venues when we put on the Opry's like the most we probably ever had was like 300 people between Mm -hmm. 200 and 300 so you know all that to say this is small potatoes compared to like the numbers that the industry is interested in and and I I certainly like never set out to say like let's make something unpalatable to the masses (laughs) I more set out to say like let's make something that's true to us you know, and, and let me make music that's true to me. And I'm certainly, though, not interested in respectability politics, you know, or I mean, I guess there is something unpalatable about that. Then if you know, like the kind of queer that is meaningful to me is about being an outsider and and fighting against a lot of what the mainstream says. So I don't know, maybe that does make it unpalatable. I come from a on our backs, not an off our backs tradition. Yeah. I want to sing about sex sometimes. Like, I mean, are we not queers? Do we not? <laughs> do we not fuck? Like, you know, that's, that's part of it. And country music can be really dirty. Like, that is a part of it too. So I think it's it's great to bring that, you know, that tradition speaks to me. I think it's interesting that you mentioned drive-by truckers before, because when I heard this the first time live, speaking of songs I needed to hear a recording of right this second, that one really sounded like it could have been drive-by truckers or a different band called Arliss Nancy, or I could totally hear Two Cal Garage playing it for fun. And they're all like these, uh, as far as I know, straight white dudes who like have been smoking <laughs> cigarettes since they were like 12. So they have like this very raspy voice. It's like, it would be so perfect to hear them sing it. But yes, it is about driving around town and going down your girlfriend and your parents. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, and that one musically, like the music to it came to me first and I felt like, oh, this is very sort of Springsteen-y, you know? Yeah. And like, 
I was thinking a lot when I was writing that song about like the Eagles and about Bob Seger. I was thinking a lot about Bob Seger for some reason, but you know, these sort of like bro rockers and like that sort of like genre of men doing rock songs that's about like loving their baby and sort of like we're getting older but we still love each other and you're still hot you know and like I just wanted one of those songs for myself (laughs) (laughs) and then at the concerts there are a number of hand gestures that go with the chorus including one that illustrates the the at described in the song. <laughs> I don't <laughs> remember. Very fun. How, I think Gerard I made it up. <laughs> Gerard made the dirtiest ones up, but <laughs> I think Alana might have started the like the the less dirty one. I don't remember how we started doing the hand gestures. I don't think it was me, but <laughs> probably was Alana. But yeah, then Gerard put some more explicit hand gestures in, and I have always enjoyed playing that song for people because they have done a great job. With with oral sex hand gestures, I'm really I'm very proud of all the queer country audiences I have played for. <laughs> like they're experts at it. Yes, almost as if they were experts at going down on their partners. <laughs>
Hi, this is Dale, the founder of Country Queer. I think we've done a pretty good job so far of creating a space for queer voices in country and Americana, but we've done it mostly with volunteer labor, and that's just not sustainable. Become a member of Country Queer today and help us take our mission to the next level. Go to countryqueer.com membership to find out how. Thank you. This episode of Country Queer Spotlight is brought to you by New West Records. Aaron Lee Tastian's fourth solo album, Tastian, 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 pushes the boundaries of taste and imagination to new heights, unrestrained by genre or subject matter. Available now at newwestrecords.com or your favorite local indie record store. This episode of Country Queer Spotlight is brought to you by Kill Rockstars, celebrating 30 years of music that matters regardless of genre, gender, orientation, or classification. We enthusiastically support Country Queer's mission of creating a space for queer voices in country, Americana, and folk. Find us at krs.gay. You're listening to Country Queer Spotlight, the podcast that introduces you to rising LGBTQ stars on the country scene. You can find more queer country content and merch at countryqueer.com. Now, back to the show with your host, Rachel Colst. But, yeah, so I feel a lot of different feelings about this moment. I mean, one, I worry about what people sometimes call pinkwashing in the ways in particular that, like, big institutions that have no interest in really changing their power dynamics will perform diversity and in particular perform diversity for queer people but have no intention in changing even on that account but certainly no intention in confronting white supremacy or thinking about anti-racism and so it's like oh look how diverse we are here's our rainbow flag you know and in the meantime not really addressing the core of what's going on so I I worry a lot about that. I see that happening. You know, I certainly think that was already happening in the ways that the industry is like, well, we can only talk about one thing at once, so we need to talk about women. You know, like, it's beyond, it's it's not even like, oh, people aren't able to have a conversation about intersectionality. It's like, there isn't even the ability to hold that more than one thing can be happening at a time. Like, you know, much less the, like, complexity. I mean, not that intersectionality is that complicated. It's not that complicated to be able to think, like, oh, look, people who have multiple identities and are experiencing oppression in multiple ways that that's going to intersect. That seems actually not, you know, that seems pretty simple to me. But... Within the industry, they're just like, no, well, let's first work on women. Like, women is, you know, like, which just means white women. So so there's that. And then there is the ways that capitalism is so infinitely flexible and can find new ways to consume what we create if it, you know, as times change and different things become palatable that were unpalatable, you know, things that were underground, things that 
we created where there weren't never going to be more than 300 people there max, right? Like the art that comes out of those spaces there, then the industry finds new ways to, to consume it and to assimilate it. And I, yeah, I worry about that. I, I worry about that the ways that like our politics, our commitment to being radical has been woven together with making this music will get torn apart and that it'll just be this empty, apolitical version of queer, you know, and uh, that makes me sad. (laughs) I don't want that to happen, but I also see how it's maybe, I mean, I see it already happening and I certainly see like, see a lot of people claiming that identity just as I don't know I mean people claiming that identity because that's who they are and they aren't they don't share those radical politics and I'm not trying to like police who's queer right like conservative people are queer too like all kinds of people are queer and some of them are jerks (laughs) (laughs) you know and some of them are right wing and some of them are like you know, and they and they make country music too, but that that has never my project has never been to you know for just anybody with a rainbow flag. Like my project has been like, how do we build a space for this music that is radical and transformative, and that's a that's a home for people who have been marginalized otherwise. So my project hasn't been how do we show the industry how you can make more money from us or how we're we're marketable or palatable or whatever. Like that hasn't been what moves me, but I understand it as a project. You know what I mean? Like I'm not trying to be like, I'm not trying to be a purist about anything or to say that people shouldn't make money. Like I want people to get paid. I want you to get paid. I want everyone to get paid, you know? So I think it's always a complicated balancing act between like, How do we fight as outsiders? What does it mean when you get an invitation inside? How much do you want to do to fit in when they invite you to the table? And how much do you want to just make a ruckus? What's something you feel really like excited and energized by looking back to like think from that first concert to where the queer country scene overall is now? Hmm, that's a good question. Because I think if you're like me, you tend to focus on the stuff you're worried about or critical. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I I feel so energized when people are just making the music they love and they're called to make. And I love when people are like collaborating and it takes off, you know, in all these new ways. And I, I mean, I kind of thinking maybe it's time to like wrap up the series in its 10th year because there's so many other things that are happening, you know, like people are putting on all kinds of other queer country shows. So in that way, like, you know, it's blossoming in all kinds of different ways. And I don't necessarily have to be the one to keep doing that work. And that makes me really happy. Like, it just makes me happy to see all these different relationships with people and to, you know, to read about all the different, you know, all the interviews you're doing and that everybody's writing on country queer and like, yeah, when people go on tour, they can reach out to each other and support each other. That makes me so happy. And whenever I've gone on tour and had that experience, it's just like, 
uh, it's the best, you know, when you're like in a new city and you haven't been there before, but like there's this other queer band who are like your friends who help you make it happen. Like that that's the kind of like world of music community that I really believe in. I don't believe in the industry at all. You know, I think that's that's part of it too. I think if you're coming from a place where you not necessarily believe in the industry, but you want to be a part of it or figure out a way to make it work or at least build a bridge to it, that is a very different vantage point than like my vantage point, which is just like, I don't <laughs> <know>. <laughs> there, none of the things I love about making music or anything about who I try to be as a person or in community exist in that industry world. It just, it's about extraction. I'm, it's about, I don't know. I'm not good at capitalism, obviously. So I've tried to get my music out there the best I could. I tried to participate in whatever ways I could bear. But yeah, I'm certainly. <laughs> I mean, like, for example, you're not out there playing like 100 shows a year. Yeah. I'm not outside of New York. So. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not good at that. And I'm not. But I'm not good at like the spin that you have to put on yourself. <sighs> yeah. So I'm not good at shutting up. Either. It's like <laughs> I'm always saying stuff that I believe in, which is really, you're not supposed to do that. I think like a nice example of like the work you've been building up to would be to play a song by the Bell Curves. And they are a queer, country queer band out of Long Island, Pete Mancini, whom you've met. Um, <laughs> yeah, I chose the, him. yeah, and we like hung out at a concert together one time, like he's uh, playing in their like upcoming album. So it's like a nice confluence of worlds. Aww. And um, they covered Patrick Haggerty's Waltzing Willie. And mm -hmm. when they sent the music to me, it was through Submit Hub. So it's not even an email. So I just glanced at it. I was like, wait, this song sounds familiar. Oh, and they cited Karen the Sorrows as one of their influences. So like, <laughs> you know, it's sort of like the people who know, know. And I think... That's something to be, I was really happy and my proud. I don't know why I felt proud. I was proud of you, you I guess. You should feel proud. You're a part yeah. of it. You're yeah. part of the, cir the circle of life. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So now we have like, I guess you can say in music, like every 10 years is sort of like another generation of musicians. So now we've yeah. got like this new generation of like, you know, queer country musicians. So take a second to listen to that. Soft and sweet, the way he waltzed was too iffy. For a psychiatrist to think was fitting. So they said, Hey, son, we think we should take you a slug of raw manhood. The state hospital's just a place to get one. Now they call him a queer sickie.
stomping queers is their God-given right. Charlottesville, I just was feeling like I really wish that there was an organized response in country music, like an organized anti-racist response. And I was just so deeply feeling the lack of that. And a lot of journalists were pointing out how while artists in almost every other field were speaking out against what was going on, like the silence in country music was pretty intense. So that was really on my mind and also it was it was really on my mind how could we do be doing a better job just with in the like queer country spaces we were trying to create to be thinking about white supremacy and the country music's history you know so I was trying to like create some spaces for that and I put on this show called Another Country that was like a day long festival, people of color musicians who are queer and trans who are just thinking about their relationship with country music sort of from different vantage points, whether they were making something that they thought of as country or were just like interested in their relationship with it. And so that was sort of like my first attempt to have some of those conversations. But then I realized if we were going to be trying to organize sort of more intentionally we needed to have just what I, I have is like, well, I better like write a one pager or something that just kind of lays out what does it mean to talk about the relationship between country music and white supremacy and that the process of trying to write that one page kind of turned into this like 50 page essay and just trying to hold all the complexity of it and also the ways that like a lot of the times when people 
want to have that conversation. Instead, they end up falling back on these very classist tropes and that actually do us a lot of harm if our intention is to dismantle these systems because they don't identify where the real power lies, you know, and sort of distract us with these stereotypes of poor white Southern people from looking at the rich white people who are really holding the power and and keeping these institutions in place. So to kind of unpack some of that and then look at the legacy of country music and its relationship to the right, you know, starting with Nixon and to look at the ways it produces this kind of nostalgia about white America that just completely erases the history and the present tense of. And then I, I was trying to use that then as a base to start bringing people together in hopes of just like sort of forming a loose coalition of people as other organizations would start to bubble up and, and form. That was my hope. So I put together a couple of meetings. That first one was at Americana Fest. And then I did another couple of Zooms and been building a mailing list over the last couple of years. And I would like get names from people at all my shows. So it's about like a mailing list of about 200 people at this point. The first project we took on was doing this Change Country Pledge which is asking people who have industry access, whether as musicians or industry professionals in country music, Americana, roots music, to pledge that access to help build new networks for BIPOC musicians and industry professionals. Because so much of the ways that white supremacy plays out within these industries are through these informal networks of like how people get jobs, how people get get gigs, like and who they know and who they lift up is often like these all white networks. And so what we're trying to do is build new networks and ask people to pledge their services, like just to be really concrete, you know, like if you're an engineer, you pledge engineering hours and you're giving people free engineering time, you know, or free PR time or, you know, playing on people's album as a studio musician. So you're, you know, using your access and your professional skills to help shift some of the resources that ordinarily really mostly go only to white people and in that way, like, lift up and amplify the music of black and indigenous and people of color musicians and people who want to be working in the industry too, because it's not just about musicians. It's also, it's about everybody as like Frankie Staten said like you know back in like I don't even know how many years ago in the 80s whatever year we're in now right but she was talking about back then she was talking about like look like it's not just about who's on the stage it's about like who's running the lights who's engineering it who is you know who's the tour manager like because it's you know, this, this whole industry and it's been access to it has been blocked off on every level. So we've been working on that. You can take the pledge at changecountrymusic.com. And if you are a BIPOC musician or industry professional and you want to check out some of the resources and connections that we've been building at this point, about 70 people have taken the pledge. You can also go to changecountrymusic.com and register on the database there. And then you can look through all the pledges that people have made. And also Holly from Black Opry is 
here to help you like sort through all this stuff because I know it can be like really intimidating just because somebody says they're pledging like you know some hours of PR time you might not necessarily be like should I reach out to this person so Holly is excited to kind of like help you look through all that and come up with a a strategic plan for what your next steps are so and we're gonna put on a zoom in july with some like tips on how to pitch journalists and more about those resources too i think it's gonna be july 21st so that's coming too and and working together with country soul songbook which Everybody should check out countrysoulsongbook.com. I'm putting on stuff with with them and you know just building a building a different space for us to be creating this music with each other and also to be supporting and lifting each other up as people venture into the industry, you know, and follow what they're called to follow but so that you can have a home base outside of that, you know, if that's what you need, if you need that kind of support and care and networks and resources and also if you want to just be creating music outside of that world of the industry you know and building a new vision of country music that is different from that we're we're working on that too yeah i mean i think this is a good point to listen to a song where you address white supremacy and how it's impacted your life price of the ticket which is from the narrow place so that was from 2017 and i think after we listen to it i think we both have a lot to say about it so (laughs) we'll just hit play for right now
I mean, as I've said, I think when I say representation matters, I don't think they meant like find a country musician who went to the same high school and grew up a black woman, <laughs> also Jewish. But all of those things, like being like a native New Yorker who loves country music, I was like, what is this? It's not like <laughs> my parents grew up listening to it, really. And like, why am I here? And where is like, where do I fit? And so I had been listening to your music for a long time before you performed this song. And then, you know, the first time I heard you sing it, I was just like, you know, like crying a little bit. For those of you who could just, you know, for contextualize the lyrics to me, it feels a lot about how um, assimilating as a Jewish person really like you lose a lot from that. And certainly since 2016, I know I've been trying to figure out what is my connection to this exactly um, mm. based on what little I know about my great grandparents and you know, the people before them. So the song like hits home for me. I'm sorry if you could <laughs> speak a little bit to it. Well, like that just means like everything to me, first of all, so thank you. You know, I don't know, that's why I do it, right? Like, that's the whole reason to write songs is to make that connection. And yeah, I mean, it's it's about what what do white people give up to become white and specifically like what do Jewish people give up to become white if they can, you know, not yeah. that all Jewish people are white, but a lot of us have been able to become white. And it takes its name from James Baldwin's The Price of the Ticket, which is a collection of his nonfiction essays, but the opening introductory essay is called The Price of the Ticket, which is all about that, like, what you paid to get here, depending on how you got here, you know, and did you come through Ellis Island or did you come on, did you come through the Middle Passage and the different price that's paid and how white Americans aren't willing to reckon with that price. So it's about that. And it's also about like, in my family, it is complicated because on the one hand, I have like, one side of my family is very wealthy and they are very like assimilated. And then the other side of my family is more working class and working class, middle class and not assimilated in the same way, especially like in terms of my grandparents. And so I, I got a very strong Jewish identity from that side of my family and especially from my grandparents Toots and Pug. And so my, my grandfather Puggy was, he wanted to be a cantor, but he didn't, wasn't able to become one, but his singing and davening was like a big part of my childhood, especially on Passover. And he had a lot of like family new goons passed down from his father that we would always sing together that really like defined me musically, I would say. It's like, but what are my influences? It's some kind of combination of like drive-by truckers and like <laughs> Jewish <laughs> melodies. Yeah, <laughs> like my grandfather Nigun. So, so the chorus of that song is a Nigun that like my grandfather came to me in my dream and sang to me after he passed away. So it's like really special to me to that song to, you know, like that, so it has both like the deepest core of my Jewish identity in it and also all these questions about about privilege and whiteness and like who 
are we willing to hold down to lift ourselves up? You know, and and what was I taught about that growing up? Because I definitely was, you know, I was definitely like raised very by my dad's really Zionist and this idea of like our survival above all. You know, and that is the opposite of what I believe. That's not who I want to be. And I don't feel like whatever suffering we've come from as Jewish people means that we can inflict that suffering and apartheid on other people. You know, like that makes no sense to me. But Mm -hmm. like I see the trauma that it comes from, you know, and I I see it in, in my own family for sure. So I was trying to sort of hold all of that really and, and say like, I want us to rise up together. I don't, I don't, I don't want to hold someone else down to lift myself up. That's not what it means to me to be Jewish. You know, like that's not like, it's not what it means to me to be queer. It's just not what it means to me to like be a human being. I want us to rise up together. I want, you know, there has to be a just world for everyone and I don't think it makes us safer when you know murdering other people how could that possibly make anybody safer I mean it's not funny but it is funny like I don't I don't know the bible's full of that it's not like this is our first (laughs) round of it right like the bible is just full of like God being like why don't you go into that city and kill every man woman and child I mean that was my Torah portion you know like that was my Torah portion. That is not what it means to me to be Jewish either. I'm not, I don't, how can that ever be okay? How can that be any sort of idea of what is like sacred, you know? But so to me, the like sacredness is in those melodies. Like I feel that sacredness when I sing my grandfather's melodies. I feel that sacredness when I make matzo balls the way that my grandma toots taught me to make like I feel that sacredness when I read like some of the prophets the sections you know like the justice roll down like waters like those parts have always really spoken to me like there is this fierce voice in a lot of Jewish literature you know from the bible on that is crying out for justice and so that moves me but not any nationalism and zionism and and trying to build our privilege and wealth and the at the expense of others on the backs of others just and in hopes that the next time there's another round of anti-semitic violence it will keep us safe i can't yeah. go along with that and so that that song sort of like holds all that for me i think there probably are a few gentiles listening to this so <laughs> just to like <laughs> rewind a bit and define some terms and karen definitely correct me because i know my understanding is not complete davening is like a, a form of prayer with like your full body mm-hmm. um not well yeah so we'll go with that. Um, yeah, you're like you're like singing the prayer kind of. Yeah, and bowing at the same time. Mm-hmm. And then we're rocking on your feet. And then a nigun is sort of like improvised chanting, usually in place of a prayer, or it's sort of like a bridge in the prayer. That's where I've seen it most often, like in, in temple. Like you'll have the prayer and then you'll take a, a break to kind of like like the light I die is in the song and then like yeah. go back to the prayer. 
But not necessarily improvise. Like they're they're like kitchen table melodies a lot of the time, you know, family melodies or community melodies, but they don't usually have words. So the chorus of Price of the Ticket is a Nigun in that way. And yeah, a lot of lad dies and I know told you this story before, but like when I was recording it, I the rest of my band wasn't Jewish and I was trying to like teach them how because I wanted it to be like group vocals and they just couldn't they just didn't understand how to sing it. They were trying so hard to like pronounce it right, you know, la da da, and they just like couldn't do it. So I was like, I gotta bring in the Jews. So I got a bunch of my Jewish friends to come in and sing. <laughs> and that's who's singing on the album. And they immediately understood, you know, because they were used to singing in that way. And it was just, it was funny though, because up until that moment, it had been such a deep part of my childhood. It didn't occur to me that other people didn't know how to sing that way. We've been talking about a lot of very like serious and like overarching themes in your music and in your work. So I, I thought we would end on like a, you know, taking a step back from the politics. Not that there's anything wrong with it, but you know, yeah. there's more to you than that. I've also noticed like this gothic streak in your work. So like <laughs> Karen the Sorrow's very first EP was about a ghost story, you know, a concept album of a mm-hmm. ghost story from New Hampshire where Alana, the original steel guitar player was from. So, and the, but that's all throughout your work, throughout all of your EPs and albums. I was wondering, you know, where does that fit in with everything else? Yeah, I I love that question. I'm def I think I just always been pretty gothy. And I do I love like gothy music. I love I love PJ Harvey. I love like I love Stevie Nicks. <laughs> I one of my greatest happiest moments honestly has been like uh, that I got to play at Night of a Thousand Stevies <laughs> and to do like some country versions of like Dreams and Sarah and that so that was like that that was a special dream come true for me. So that's always run really deep in me, and and I I I think the that the ways that music can take us to those scary places feels important to me. You know, places that otherwise you might not go. And that like that EP Oceanborn Mary was really me saying like I had just ended this very long term relationship, and I was trying so hard to like be compassionate and open and loving and forgiving and just you know and let things go and and rebuild my life and I I was honestly I think I was doing a pretty good job of it but when Alana told me that ghost story about Oceanborn Mary I was like what would it be like to just go the other fucking direction and just like be like this first so that's like a place I've always been interested in going to with my music and and also like why won't you come back to me is is the same place so sort of like in a lot of ways like <laughs> you know just wanting to summon all of the forces of heaven and hell to bring somebody back even though in real life, I would not do that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you could like kind of play, dress up in like this safe you know, yes, it's... music mix for like three minutes. Yeah. And I mean, I think we do like music. Music is a spell. I really, I really believe that. Like, I just think music has this power that we need. Like our bodies need it. Our spirits need it. And that's why it's so important to me to like make sure that 
people like what you can make the music you're called to make and you can listen to the music that calls to you you know because we need it so you know and sometimes what the spell that you need is <laughs> some of the dark arts like <laughs> <laughs> i always like to ask this at the end is there like a queer country artist you'd like to shout out yes well i've been I wanted to shout out Delilah Black's new song, Accountability, which is so good. And she played it on when we just had the last Queer Country Quarterly. That that has been the one silver lining of everything being online is I've been able to have Queer Country Quarterlies with people everywhere. Like that was my first international one. You know, she's in London. It was so exciting. So she played this great song that was stuck in my head and I was so excited that she she, she just put it out as a single so I could listen to it because there's nothing worse than when somebody plays a song that you love and you don't have a recording of it it's torture yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lily Lewis also just put out recently this EP and her song My American Heart was another one she played that also on the Queer Country Quarterly and I was similarly tortured just fucking love that song and i was like if you don't record this i'm gonna die <laughs> so i <laughs> i know that feeling yeah. yeah right it's hard it's really it is hard which is another reason why it's so important that we make sure like that resources are flowing to all these amazing artists so that they can get their music out there so that all of us who love their music don't die <laughs> because we're longing to hear their songs and because I know you're the, like this kind of person too when you hear a song you love you just want to listen to it over and 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 over again <laughs> so I need yeah. a good recording that'll hold up <laughs> yeah yeah so I say what the hell let's listen to both Accountability by Delilah Black and Lily Lewis's My American Heart Yay! and I know that Delilah got a rainy day fund grant yeah. to record this i think lily might have also got yeah one. lily i yeah. think lily just got one too so shout out to rainy day fund like and we just need to amplify that by a lot like yes. <laughs> send your pennies in whatever pennies you have you know what i mean like if you have stuff you can pledge please please take the change country pledge if you have pennies you can send please send them and if you have more than pennies if you're somebody like me who comes from a lot of privilege and who's been able to like use that to make your music you know whether it's been just to have the time to create things or to pay for recording stuff like hey that's a great like no disrespect but also then like Think about sending some of that cash to people who haven't had that access because, you know, because we need we need their songs. After we listen to their music, we'll also listen. We'll close out the podcast with Why Won't You Come Back to Me from Guaranteed Broken Heart, your most recent album. I don't think that you can come close to everything you've done for me spiritually and emotionally. So I guess thank you is the best we got. <laughs> thank you. Have you no shame? You know you should when you recall all the things, all the things you say. When you recall all the things you do, who gets 
Won't you baby till we're born healthy Won't you son make it home from the war Fully able to rejoin his people My American heart Won't you jump to help you feed your family Hope to let you build a home and houses Generations of joy My American
This episode of Country Queer Spotlight is brought to you by New West Records. Pick up your copy of Aaron Lee Tastian's fourth solo album, Tastian, 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 available now at newwestrecords.com or your local indie record store. This episode of Country Queer Spotlight has been brought to you by Kill Rock Stars, celebrating 30 years of music that matters regardless of genre, gender, orientation, or classification. KRS.gay. Well, cowpokes, we've reached the end of the trail for this episode. Thanks for listening to Country Queer Spotlight, the podcast that introduces you to rising LGBTQ stars on the country scene. Head on over to countryqueer.com for more queer country content and merch. Rachel Colst has been your host and producer. For new music by Roots artists of all genders and orientations, listen to her weekly podcast, Adobe and Teardrops. Country Queer Spotlight is edited by Zach Tomlinson, executive produced by Country Queer's founder, Dale Geist. And our theme song, Ride Me Cowboy by Paisley Fields, is courtesy of Don Giovanni Records. Ride me cowboy.